I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the fourth and final episode in this series of close readings looking at how history changed in the Romantic period. I'm Rosemary Hill. I'm a contributing editor at the LRB and I'm extremely pleased to be joined this week by Neil McGregor, former director of the National Gallery, the British Museum and most recently the Humboldt Forum in Berlin and whose latest radio series, The Museums That Make Us, is currently running on BBC Radio 4. Hello, Neil. Hello, Rosemary. Well, last time I talked to Rowie Sweet about the Bayer Tapestry and the tireless work of antiquaries in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, studying the objects of the past and reimagining how we think about our history. And this week, Neil and I are going to go to the scene of the event which could be described as the determining moment in romantic history and which we haven't really talked about yet in this series, the Battle of Waterloo. It became a tourist destination even as the smoke of war still hung in the air and its material relics soon found their way into antique shops and private collections and became part of that circulation of antiquities that led to the establishment of the modern museum, the kind of museums that we recognise today. After Waterloo, there was all this stuff which people were acquiring all the way across Europe. And it's the beginning of what we now think of as architectural salvage. And Wardour Street in Soho became the area where, um, I mean, not interestingly very far from the British Museum, which at that stage had no British antiquities, became the sort of the, the, the classic place for getting your knocked off or knocked up antiquities. It does become a, a huge trade, doesn't it? Not just because of the revolutionary armies, but because, because of the secularisation of so many of the religious houses right across Europe. This enormous volume of objects, uh, sacred and profane, panelling, textiles, all of which suddenly arrives often with no proper provenance at all. Well, very, no, very little provenance. And, of course, the, the, the line between things which were genuinely about to be destroyed, which was always the argument, it's still the argument for architectural salvage, oh, if we, if we hadn't taken it, it would have been destroyed. And the dealers who were chartering whole ships and going over to the low countries and saying to people, well, that's a nice set of choir stalls, be a shame if anything happened to it. And um, also, you know, with offering large sums of money. And indeed, if you know, the irony is that as... The French and um, in the Low Countries, they were stripping out the religious houses. A lot of this stuff was going into churches in England, which had been stripped out at the Reformation or in the Civil Wars, and they were filling up again. And certainly if you look at church, English churches now, you can see an awful lot of continental woodwork. It, that is fascinating because the, the supreme example of that, I suppose, is the great uh, Hertogenbosch screen in the, in, in, in the, in the V&A, um, this magnificent piece of, of, of church architecture, sculpture architecture from the Netherlands, 
bodily transported. But there, of course, everyone knew where it had come from. What, what's interesting, of course, is that because of the volume and because of all the disruptions, the the capacity to allege provenance, to to link false associations, which put the price up, becomes an absolute standard part of the antique world, doesn't it? And yes. Part, I mean, it's a bit like relics in, in an earlier uh, moment, isn't it? I mean, the, it's the authenticity, it's the real provenance, the real history of the object that makes it uh, worthwhile. But people so want it to be what they hope it is. And then ultimately the role of the museum is to sort out the, the the real from the fake in that sense. Yes, well, it, well, there are fakes and then there are mistakes. And there was also this very elastic romantic attitude towards authenticity. So there was a process which was known as sophisticating, which was not exactly fraud. It was when you made, an, a, you know, if you wanted a Gothic music stand, because the Middle Ages didn't have music stands, so you would get some genuine bits of old carving and put them together. And then there were misunderstandings. There's an interesting piece of horse armour in the collection of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, which belonged to Walter Scott, but he didn't realise it was horse armour. He thought it was a kind of helmet, and he put horns, um, antler-type horns, into what it's quite clear, if you look at it from the right angle, were meant to be eye holes. So these objects that came into existence um, from all sorts of directions, there were fakes, there there were mistakes, and also, of course, suddenly... The um, auction house, the number of auction houses and sale rooms absolutely boomed during the Napoleonic Wars because London was the richest city in Europe. It was the most stable city in Europe. And art always follows the money. And of course, it's where ultimately the demand for a national gallery becomes irresistible because for uh, those 20 years, people in London can see the great pictures of the continent in a way they can't see them in the royal collection because the the king has closed the royal collection. So if you want to see great art, you go to the sale rooms. And when it all dries up, more or less after, after 1815, then the pressure to have a permanent place where you can see great paintings in the National Gallery becomes ultimately irresistible. And that, of course, yes, I mean, famously the Orleans collection, which was shown in London. So all sorts of very ordinary private people suddenly could see these great masterpieces. And it was part of the debate that antiquaries like Dawson Turner had when they saw the Louvre being dismantled, because they thought, well, on the one hand, it's clearly all this stuff has been looted, and that's very wrong. On the other hand, it has been um, a public gallery, and we haven't got anything like that in London, and we should have. Exactly. And the existence of the Louvre is one of the great triggers for the creation of the gallery, ultimately. And in a rather nice inversion of the, the uh, of the narrative, when Giscard d'Estaing came to the National Gallery when I was working there, and we stopped in front of four great Veronese's from the Orléans collection, his response was not what wonderful Veronese's these are, but he stood face, was always a bit lugubrious, deeply lugubrious, and said, Edir, que tout cela est sorti de France. <laughs> Yes, that well, sense of loss goes very, very deep. deep indeed. Very deep. <laughs> In a way, I think this great tide of stuff, of real or fairly real, authentic or fairly authentic objects, became so important 
that it overtook the conventional ideas about monuments. And it is a very curious fact that at a period when architects were absolutely brilliant at doing neoclassical triumphal arches and obelisks and things, there was no monument either in London or on the battlefield to the Battle of Waterloo itself. It is a very remarkable thing, isn't it? Um, And also no monument at Waterloo itself. The fact that the event is maybe just too big to be reduced to a monument, to a building. And the memories around it, the interpretations of it, what people want it to mean, too differing, too diverse to allow one monument. I mean, who would have decided which monument should go up at Waterloo? Yes, well, of course, there were lots of um, designs and competitions, but there doesn't also seem to have been any great momentum. The great momentum was for everyone to rush to the battlefield itself. And to go, to be there, to stand on the spot and to feel what people had felt there. I think that seems to me one of the really interesting things about that, that it's not... The idea is not to have a monument that tells you about what happened, but to have a place where you can feel and reimagine what happened, become part of that history and decide what it means to you. It leaves the understanding of Waterloo completely open to the visitor. It makes it very personal and that of course is of the essence with romantic history and I think I've always thought that one of the reasons that the romantic age began to look properly at the Middle Ages was because that idea of history as geography, history as landscape, which was absolutely essential to the medieval worldview, came back again. And so the sense of place, the sense that you could stand where Napoleon had stood, you could stand where Wellington had stood, I think we're very much like that still, but that you could bring back some material part of the real thing and have it in your own home was much more satisfying than going looking at a triumphal arch. We're certainly still very like that in in lots of other areas, aren't we? I mean, the the Sound of Music tour <laughs> is exactly that. You stand where the various figures stood, the Da Vinci Code tour in Paris, everywhere. Now, I mean, a film of that sort that's about a place or about places generates that kind of tourism, which I think has been pretty well unbroken since Waterloo. I mean, quite apart from the great... First World War battlefield tourism industry, which does something of the same. It is now an essential part of tourism, isn't it, to be where other things, other people stood in events that you think you know, real or real or fictional. Yes, that's the other thing which we've inherited, I think, very much from the Romantics and never really given up, is that it doesn't matter whether the event was real in the historic sense or only real because you read Ivanhoe or whatever. But there were a lot of material objects, of course, not only the the bits and pieces on the battlefield and indeed human remains. Walter Scott famously collected the skull of a lifeguardsman. But then, of course, at the same time in the Louvre, there was all this stuff, pictures and sculptures predominantly, which... The French had acquired, by means of treaties, but, you know, pretty much at gunpoint they'd acquired them. And then, and so perhaps for the first time, the question arises of who can own these things? What's the legitimate title to them? I think the the making and the unmaking of the revolutionary and then Napoleonic Louvre is one of those extraordinary phenomena that still shapes almost every debate today, in, in two ways. The, the Napoleonic Louvre, particularly, becomes 
an emblem of France, of what France is. I mean, what a later uh, ruler would call une certaine idée de la France is embodied in the Louvre as gathering all European culture, holding it, protecting it, explaining it. And the idea of a collection of works of art as embodying a polity goes on in the most extraordinary way, I mean, most striking, I think, later on with the way the Republicans in the Civil War in Spain take the Prado with them as they retreat and eventually send it to Geneva so that that idea of Spain can be saved as well as, as, well as just the objects. Um, that idea of a state embodied, given form in a collection, I think is crystallises in the Napoleonic Louvre. The dismemberment of it and the return of the objects triggers, I think, something equally remarkable in that when the objects are asked for, their loss, the fact that they had been removed, becomes a very important constituent element in new national identity. And we're seeing that today. I mean, the, the, this prime example might be the great Paulus Potter painting of the bull, the young bull, now in the, in the Moritz house. Um, and it is this absolutely extraordinary, huge picture. It's about eight feet high by 11 feet wide of a young bull taken by the revolutionary armies, not by Napoleon, the revolutionary armies, brought back to the Louvre. And there it hangs with Tisch and Raphael, whatever. And it becomes as people look at the whole of European art, the embodiment of the Dutch, the Dutchness of, du of the Dutch. And when it comes back in 1815, it's brought back with a military escort, the church bells ring, <laughs> and a new idea of what it means to be Dutch, to be proud, to be realistic, not to be pretentious. You're showing an animal that's got a function, painting it in detail. That becomes, it creates a mythology, and I think the impact of the returning works on the consciousness of those who'd lost them is a remarkable phenomenon. It was also, of course, as I said, the beginning of all these questions about who can own things. And one of the antiquaries, Dawson Turner, who luckily for us was there when it was going on and writes about it. And exactly as you say, there were great national arguments going on between people in the building at the time. Canova was there trying to get the Borghese marbles back and the French was just saying they hadn't, there were 120 cases of them, but apparently no one had seen them. And Canova was, was trying to get them back. And the Raphaels were lying on the floor outside their frames. But this question, the Dutch who got their Paulus Potter back and brought it back with an armed escort. But then there were other things which, as Dawson Turner was saying, well, at least while these pictures were here, everyone could see them. It was, it was a public museum. But then he watches pictures being created up for the Prince Regent and he thinks, well, these are just going to... And the Italian, the, the Canova admits that the Italian pictures are not going to go back to the little regional churches. They're going to go into the Vatican Museum. But the aftershock, one of the great aftershocks, surely, of the revolution in this period is, as you say, these 
the need, what the Normans describe. Because not only with national identity, the, the revolution had tried to wipe out all, centralise everything, wipe out all the regions. And then, of course, people who hadn't really thought much about being regional became obsessed with the idea that they were Norman. Um, and the, the, the joint Anglo-Norman project to create une identité retrospective for Normandy began. So yes, the sense of loss, which is of course essential to romanticism anyway, that then gives you an idea that you can be defined by what you have lost. And that is how you're going to make the future out of the past. That's another of the aspects of, of, of your book that strikes me as so, I think such an extraordinary resonance, surprising resonance today in the debate again to do with the Louvre or the museums in Paris about the colonial objects taken particularly by the French colonial power in Africa and the sense of loss articulated by the Africans in terms of political identity, in terms of a history they need to recover and that the recovery of the thing will somehow not only make good the humiliations of the past but strengthen the identity of the present. And it's one of the lovely continuities of French history, if you like, that the scholar that was charged by President Macron to write the report on the return of those objects from French public collections to Africa was Benedict Savoy, the scholar who wrote what is the definitive work of the impact of the dismantling of the Louvre, both on the French psyche their shock of loss, and on the psyche of those who recovered the works. So a very conscious parallel between the questions about the legitimacy of the Louvre under Napoleon and its dispersal, and the legitimacy of colonial collections, and whether they should be dispersed. I mean, these questions have come right back centre stage. They have, and I think it's worth emphasising we sort of take it for granted that to study, I mean, you know, you are the king of the history of the world in 100 objects, but this idea that you can take a material object and it is interesting in itself perhaps, but on the, but, but the real point of it is that as an antiquary that you can use this object as a kind of keyhole through which an entire landscape, psychological, historical, um, and associational opens up. And that is an idea that begins here because before the Romantics, I think really, I mean, everyone was always loot. It was always treasure. But it was very much based on value. I mean, you know, material value rather than the fact that people might want back things, well, exactly as you've said, I mean, in, in Africa, things which are expressive of national identity. That is, is what became very interesting as we were doing the history of the world's 100 objects at the British Museum because we tried in every case, or as many cases as possible, to ask somebody from the, the, the current geographic place from which the object came what that object meant. So, in a sense, a, a historian's approach, curatorial approach to the history of the object in its making, and then, if you like, an antiqu antiquary's approach to what the object means... Uh, now, uh, with a lot of projection involved, and the two together do, I think, give one a very different kind of engagement with the object, um, which is an antiquarian and, I hope, 
also a historical, historical one, but it was very striking hearing somebody like Wallace Iwinka talking about the Benin Bronzes and what it meant to have a Benin Bronze, to hold a Benin Bronze, what it meant to him, not particularly interested in the history of the making, the original circumstance. It was the loss of that object and the possibility of its return or seeing it in the place to which it had been removed and the emotions that would trigger that were more powerful than the knowledge about its original making. And I think that's what you're talking about in the, the construction of a Norman identity, that the, the things of the past are explored as historical artefacts, but then their real power comes from what we decide they mean to us now because they've been destroyed or removed. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. If you're enjoying this series, you might like to read the many pieces by Rosemary Hill in the LRB archive. Subscribe to the London Review of Books today to save 79% off the cover price and get a free tote bag. Just go to lrb.me forward slash history. That's lrb.me forward slash history or click on the link below. This offer is only available for a limited time. And the other thing which um, I think we feel again now, which was certainly um, very much part of the feeling across Europe in the aftermath of, first of all, of the revolution and then the revolutionary wars, was the need to um, not only modify objects at some times, but actually to recontextualise them. And the only way that um, the French preserved any of their um, religious art through the revolution was by recontextualizing it. And we, uh, we've talked elsewhere in this series about the Musée des Monuments Français. But that is something that I think for a long time after the middle of the 19th century, people didn't think about very much. You went to a museum, there was the thing, usually in a glass case with a label on it. And um, you were taken round as a child and either found it inspiring or a bit boring. And only really perhaps in, I don't know, how long... Is it, do you think, that we've begun really critically to re-examine this question of how you show an object? Well, I, th- well, I think it's been a long time because the border in Berlin at the, the end of the 19th century tried to reconstruct the something like the, the hated period room, <laughs> but trying to create four Italian Renaissance paintings, uh, religious paintings particularly, uh, sculpture from a chapel, furnishings from a chapel, so that you could respond to the original object out of context by giving it something approaching its original context. And, of course, it's also loathed by the purists, the, the historians. In your, to take your polarity of historians and uh, antiquaries, um, it's a very antiquary approach isn't it, these great collections where you reassemble the interior, taken by this great I mean, high German scholar. But, of course, it's deeply disliked by purist historians, curators. They're all dismantled for a time. They're just starting to be re-presented. And virtual recontextualization is now absolutely at the centre of what the museum is doing. The return of the panorama is, I think, a very fascinating thing. Again, a romantic phenomenon, the panorama. I mean, when you look at what people were doing in terms of theatre design, and antiquaries were very important in theatre design, I mean, 
the Romantic period was the first time that, it, which comes as a surprise to us, that people bothered with period costumes in Shakespeare or in any other kind of drama. So the idea that you would provide an historical setting for an historical play, that you would put people in historical clothes, was also part of, as you say, the creation of antiquarian interiors, attempts to reconstruct rooms that might have been Renaissance interiors in England and ultimately in France at Cluny. As that kind of builds up, there's a great enthusiasm for optical illusions. I mean, it's almost as if you can see, I mean, we know that photography is about to be invented, <laughs> and you can see them pushing at the limits with dioramas, panoramas, the Ida Fusicon, all these attempts to create um, a complete simulacrum of, of moving life. And I think then, of course, inevitably it all falls out of fashion. But so... Do you see virtual reality in the museum as a kind of return to that idea? Oh, well, and, and the panorama. I mean, if you if you go to Berlin now, the Pergamon Museum is the, is a really excellent case study of this of the return to the Romantic world, mixing scholarship with emotion, with illusion, and as everybody knows, the the, the Pergamon Museum, those huge huge uh, blocks of Hellenistic uh, sculpture brought back at the end of the 19th century to Berlin, brought to Berlin at the end of the 19th century, installed in that wonderful theatrical way so that you've got a sense of the grandeur of the place, but entirely in a museum setting. Um, they'd done the same with the Babylon, the processional gateway. Berlin is the place where in the 1920s, above all, the, the romantic dream of re giving you the impression of what it was like to be in Babylon is brought back to the museum. In Berlin now, the Pergamon Museum is closed for restoration. What they've done is build nearby a cylinder, like a great gasometer, and you stand inside and there's a panorama showing you Pergamon. You climb up a tower, it's absolutely huge, this is the size of a gasometer, and on the platform, you are in Pergamon at the time that the altar is in use. You go through the cycle of the day from morning to night. The landscape, the city, crowds of people all dressed in costume, sounds, the temple below you streaming with blood from animal sacrifice, real figures from the museum staff dressed up in costume, <laughs> but also ancient sculptures that you recognise, like the Spinario, the boy pulling the thorn out of his foot, sitting idly by. It's And it lasts about 20 minutes. And for 20 minutes, you are in Pergamon. And then you go and look at the sculptures. And it is the most total... I mean, I'm sure, I mean, it's the sort of thing that the, the antiquaries in the book would have loved. Well, also, it sounds exactly like um, the Pantheon in Oxford Street, which was, of course, ultimately burnt down, but exactly the same thing, and that for 20 minutes, or indeed the diorama in Regent's Park, but they were, interestingly, were usually about 20 minutes. That seems to be the length of time for which... <laughs> we can cope disbelief. with living in the past. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but also, as you were saying, I mean, the idea of um, museum staff dressed up in historical costume, people would have been fainting in coils 30 years ago at the idea that, that this was an OK way for a serious museum to behave. Exactly. And it does engage emotionally. I've been several times with many different visitors of, of, from different levels of engagement with the past, everybody is moved by it. Everybody feels they've been transported to another place. 
And they see that as part of the purpose of a museum, that this technology now allows them to do it. It is exactly a return to the Panopticon. And it's exactly, to go back to where we began, standing on the battlefield at Waterloo, you are in another place at another time with other people and these things going on around you. It's allowing the imagination back in, which I think, I mean, imagination is always there. And I always wonder what, if you do have the, you know, the isolated object on the plinth in the centre of the room and perhaps a caption, what people are meant to make of that, unless they happen to be themselves great specialists and only interested in the history of the particular object. It's extremely hard, isn't it, when you look at something like the bust of Nefertiti <laughs> in isolation. Yes. Um, and rather interesting, the, there the Berlin museums have gone on a different tack and isolated this as the supremely beautiful object, in a sense, out of time. Yes. I mean, there is, of course, lots of contextual material nearby, but it's shown absolutely as a thing of beauty on its own, in isolation. And I think what it does mean is your response can only be an aesthetic one. Yes. I mean, it can't trigger the imagination in an associative way because it's only an aesthetic response. The other thing, of course, that happens in those museums, as far as I remember them, is that the you, it is brought home to you how very colourful these objects were originally. And that was a thing in this period that people were trying to explain to their contemporaries at the Middle Ages were not all kind of um, monochrome and stone and as and the, the buildings that they had that they were rediscovering the medieval buildings had in fact been very brightly coloured and that I think is still colour in the past is something we're still a bit resistant to. Well, the again technology to the rescue, the projection of colour onto the facades of cathedrals, so that the statues become again polychrome. It's a soi lumiere moment, but it is becoming inside museums for things like particularly Assyrian reliefs at the moment. I'm not quite sure why they've been the favoured recipients of this, but projecting onto Assyrian reliefs the imagined colours. And of course, it completely changes the legibility. They become a narrative, they become a story you can enter, follow, engage with. And I think that's, again, becoming something that the public, of course, have no difficulty with this at all. Yes. Um, the historian, quite properly, is concerned that the, these may, may not be the real colours, but the impact of this is enormous. And it is now more and more widespread. You find it from Mexico, you find it all over. Um, people using the technology to recolour ancient sculpture without, of course, actually interfering with the object itself. That's the big difference. And there's also, of course, in a kind of hierarchy of taste, which again, with the antiquaries, looking at um, medieval art, which the cognoscenti had long since dismissed because it was simply crude. And so there was a, a broadening of access across classes to history and to the artefacts of history. And the colours thing is definitely a class thing. I mean, colour is naff, colour is god gnomes. And, and this sort of pure grayscale view of, of high art, I think it's quite, as well as, as being just a shock in terms of the information it conveys, there's a kind of uh, snobbery, isn't there? Uh, well, absolutely. The, that's played out, has been played out very dramatically and is still being played out in the, the cleaning 
the conservation of old master paintings above all, where the gentle patina of time, the harmony given by slightly gold and varnish, was what some might call the faded chintz approach yes. to uh, old master painting. And the shock, the, the real dislike of the colours that it was clear Titian had actually used, the cacophony of those colours, clearly as an intended device, the cleaning of the Sistine ceiling, uh, again, the shock of Michelangelo's colours, and very much tied in with that notion that you just said of bright colour being naff, and we, we like these discrete things. And the Louvre in this has remained the absolute bastion of the golden veil through which we look at the great paintings of the past and great reluctance to, to remove varnish, even though it's clearly discoloured and clearly over original paint and could be removed. How interesting, because that, of course, is the third thing when one looks at objects of the past. There's the, the intrinsic historic, what is it, how old is it, what is it made of, what physically the object is. Then there are the associations it has, which may be cultural and national and personal and very changeable. Um, but then there's also the whole horrible question of taste. <laughs> exactly. And who is making the museum? And for whom? <laughs> And the and it's one of the of course because almost all the great museums in Europe the core of the collection is royal or princely, and although one might imagine that would be very different in Britain, it's much less different than you would think to start with because of course the trustees have the same tastes as as the princes and the rulers, and it's only when the scholars like Eastlake take over that the National Gallery starts buying pictures that most people don't find beautiful because they're important. The question of taste and the question of scholarship collide. But for the antiquarian, I don't think there would ever be any doubt. You, you go with what's, what you like, don't you? Or what, or, what, or what takes you into somewhere else, what triggers a, an association? What triggers an association and allows you this dynamic relationship with the past, and one of the things that antiquaries did in their own homes, not all antiquaries created antiquarian interiors, but, but many did, and that was a thing which went across all the classes, whether you're thinking about Clooney or someone like Samuel Rushmerick who built his own castle, or then you get it in Dickens, um, in Great Expectations, with the aged P down in Woolworth with his battlements and his working cannon. And the thing there is not, not taste in the sense of thinking these things are fine, but thinking... And again, Scott's antiquary hangs up pictures of historic figures and he puts in between them pictures of his own family. Um, and I th again, I think that's something, there's this huge boom now helped by computers in um, family history and people understanding where they come into the story of the past and um, not necessarily um, sticking to the facts. I mean, maybe sometimes putting oneself in at a more interesting angle to the past is a very, um, a very romantic tradition, but it, it, it departs really from that idea of taste, which meant that, for example, there weren't, I mean, as you say, by the middle of the 19th century and Eastlake and people bringing in, um, bringing an historic perspective to bear. But until that point, of course, there were no British antiquities in the British Museum. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and if there are, they're acquired almost by accident or because someone like Frederick Madden really pushes. Um, and I think one of the interesting sets of objects that 
that, that you don't, I think, mention in the book from this bit is, of course, the, are the Lewis Chessmen, which are acquired by the British Museum in 1831, long before there's a Department of British Antiquities, and acquired because Madden wants to keep them all together. I, mean, I think we should explain that Frederick Madden, yes. who does come into my book, who was, he was, would you say he was the great kind of moderniser at the museum? Oh, yes. I mean, well, he's the, he does rather for the museum, I think, what Eastlake does at the National Gallery. He's a rigorous historian who wants the collection to be about the proper examination of history. And he was a very, luckily for us, a very compulsive diarist. Deeply disagreeable man, I think. Well, I don't know. I mean, everyone who met him seemed to get on with him. But I think that was because he then went home at the end of the day and wrote these furious diary entries about how hopeless everyone else was and what a nightmare. So anyway, yes, Madden, being a very bristly new broom at the British Museum... Acquired? Did, did he acquire the Lewis Chessman? Yes, the, the, the Chessman had discovered in 1831 about well, the, the person who winds up with them, the, the dealer, says they're about, they're about 95. And originally the Society of Antiquaries in Edinburgh are going to buy some of them, going to buy them all and then keep some of them for their museum and sell the rest to their fellows. And they were found on Lewis? They were found on, on the island of Lewis. And I don't think anybody knows what they are at that stage. The scheme to buy some, sell the rest, founders, and Madden at the British Museum decides that the British Museum's duty is to buy them and keep them together. Um, by that stage, the dealer says they're only 83 or something, and eventually he persuades the, his, his boss to buy them. And they're there. But they then turn into something, of course, quite interesting. Later, it turns out there are more of them. They are bought by the antiquaries in Edinburgh for the, for the museum. But they become, in some ways, an emblem of loss, <laughs> something taken from Scotland. It's, I think, quite early on clear to everybody that these are actually Scandinavian, probably made in Trondheim. But the Scots, particularly at the end of the 20th century, begin to think of them as something that had been removed. And very fascinatingly, in 2009, the Scottish Nationalist Government, or the minister, the Scottish Nationalist Minister of the Government of Scotland, wanted the British Museum to send them back to Scotland for what was called the Year of the Homecoming, when Scots from all around the world were being encouraged to come home. And these Norwegian high medieval uh, chess pieces had somehow become part of Scottish identity. I think almost entirely because they were not in Scotland, the loss. The loss had made them significant and the return would be powerful. And uh, in fact, now some of them are permanently on loan in the museum in Lewis, which is a very good idea. But the way the object was transformed by becoming an object of loss and therefore part of an identity was being played out from 1830 slowly on to 2009. Yes, going against the great... and um, Walter Scott having given the Scots this great sense of national identity by whereby, as I talked to Colin Kidd about this, whereby everybody, including Queen Victoria, felt that they were really Scottish. Um, so, and possibly really Jacobite. <laughs> oh, yes, and possibly really Jacobite as well. Um, as the Times said, we're all Jacobites now, um, which was an amazing achievement. But in the more recent discussion of Scotland and its identity, which again is you know, hugely discussed now, Walter Scott, despite his enormous monument in Prince's Street, is very little mentioned. That isn't the story that is now wanted. And I think it's very interesting what you say about the Lewis Chessman being kind of 
battened onto in a way as a symbol of loss because all the things that could reasonably have been regarded as a real sense of loss, the Scottish regalia, Highland dress, I mean, Scott had dealt with all of that stuff. Exactly. So they kind of need to find something else to miss. Is that, well, the Stone of Schoon came first. Oh, yes, of course. The, the Stone of Schoon came. And again, that's a fascinating demonstration, I think, of exactly this romantic phenomenon. Yes. That it's because it's been taken away that it matters. And of course, as, as we know, it was famously um, stolen shortly before the coronation um, by young Scottish nationalist students and then returned. This, the stone on which, historically, the kings of Scotland had been crowned, taken by um, Edward I, taken to England, and the King of England crowned on the, the stone on which the kings of Scotland were crowned. A very clear statement of, wonderfully physical statement of symbolic supremacy. And it didn't, I think, really become very much of, a, of, of an issue until uh, the 1950s, the, the accession of the Queen. Was she to be Elizabeth I or Elizabeth II in Scotland? Was she to have two numbers like James VI and I and so on? Then it's stolen, comes back, and then as Scottish nationalism recovers and grows again from the 1970s on in a different form, it becomes again a symbol of something that was taken away and a symbol of forced annexation, appropriation. And the major government sends it back to Edinburgh. I suppose, perhaps not surprisingly, it has, I think, much less public effect much less éclat in Edinburgh now than it did for Scott than it did in Westminster Abbey. Of course, yes, it, it, its um, position then was literally under the medieval the coronation chair in Westminster and, and Abbey. The king sat over it. The king, or indeed the queen, exactly. sat over it. And it is also, I would think, the stone of Schoon, when you look at it, it sums up the kind of object that made antiquaries a laughing stock from Middle Ages onwards. Because it is just, if you didn't know what it was, it, it does just look like a rather broken, in fact, bit of old stone. So it is purely the association. And then I think it's very interesting that when it is no longer lost or seen to be held prisoner, this is exactly what Scott did with the regalia. He insisted that they'd been lost. And then he insisted he'd rediscovered them. And they were just exactly where everyone knew they'd been left. One of the wonderful historical ironies of the, the of, of recent years in Scotland is that not far from Abbotsford now in Galashiels is this remarkable object, the Great Tapestry of Scotland, which is an attempt, very Scotty, an attempt to present an entire history of Scotland, and. Behind it, another Edinburgh writer, another advocate, like Scott, uh, Alexander McCall Smith, who dreamt up the idea. And it's an embroidery, just like the Bayeux tapestry is an embroidery. But what is remarkable about it is that it does something that I think antiquaries would really have approved of, that there's a clear narrative set out by the historian who devised the plot, so to speak, um, Alastair Moffat, but it was stitched by thousands of people across the whole of the country. And in the margins, the stitchers, most of them women, have added domestic objects that speak to them. So you keep having the great moments of Scottish history, the great figures of Scottish history, but linked to things of everyday life 
by the people making the history. They are, and they are the makers of this history. This is a history of the people of Scotland made by the people of Scotland with their objects. It is, I think, very much the way an antiquary might have thought of a history. I think it's one, it was one of the great... Um, part of the great momentum of romantic antiquarianism was this idea, which all the romantics had, the romantic poets had it too, that you were not, you were not, you were going to be interested in kings and queens and battles, but you were also interested in ordinary people, in in seeing your own experience mirrored in the past. It was hugely important in the romantic period. Then it sort of went away in as history became more professionalised, museums became professionalised, history became a subject in universities, which it wasn't. I mean, national, other than classical history, history wasn't studied in universities until much later on in the 19th century. But when it was, it went back very much to that idea that you talked about the important people and the big events. Uh, so, yes, the wars, the kings, the queens, nothing to do with ordinary people and domestic life. It also became very masculine. And as John Burrow, who wrote The History of History, says, you know, there was a distinct whiff of pipe smoke about history right up to the 1950s. And then um, I think we've rediscovered the romantic idea of history, which was not only the antiquaries, but certainly the antiquaries were very engaged with it, that of course it was important to know what everybody, not just king, not just ordinary people, what kings and queens too, what they wore, what they ate, how they decorated their houses. Again, this idea of colour coming back into the past, literal colour, but also emotional colour, that these were real people. They had feelings, they had disasters. It wasn't all just a kind of programme of dynasties and wars. And so I think that we, f- we feel much closer to the Romantics in the way the Romantics felt much closer to the Middle Ages because we have rediscovered this sense of ourselves in history. And certainly the tapestry of Scotland is part of that, of individuals working individual lives into a bigger scheme. There is an outline. There has to be um, a sense of where you're going with all of this. But no, it's, it's a wonderful rediscovery of history, you know, of people doing their own history. It, it's part of a, of a much bigger movement across museums worldwide now that I, again, I I think is connected to the antiquaries and to the spirit of the antiquaries that that you write about. The idea that the public, the visitor, has a right to be a co-curator of the display. That, of course, there is the curator in the museum who is the guardian of historic truth, the in the Ranke phrase, wie es eigentlich gewesen war. The uh, most romantic idea. <laughs> the most romantic idea of all. Um, what actually happened, what it actually is and was, uh, is the province of, of the curator. But that that's incomplete now without the engagement of the public. And that usually means now of particular parts of the public, particular communities, groups, who were directly affected by the events or indeed participants in them. And everywhere you go now in museums, I mean, particularly in the United Kingdom, but right across Europe as well, the sense that without that kind of public participation in what the narrative means, you are not really fulfilling your function as a public institution. And you're not making that essential difference between the university and the museum. And the museum is the place where that 
shared making of history, thinking about history takes place, while the university is still, if you like, the, the domain of, of Ranke. Yeah, well, of course, Ranke, though he um, says that he wants history to be exactly what it was, but he was a great romantic and he believed that that was achievable because all time is eternally present to God. So he conceived this within a very metaphysical context. And my own feeling is that one of the reasons that Ranke is held up as this great realist is that nobody wanted to acknowledge what they actually owed to the romantic antiquaries. <laughs> but that's my particular hobby horse. But no, the, the distinction between the university is the place for the lecture, but the museum is the place for the conversation, I think is something that, again, was very familiar to the romantics, but we are coming back to it. And we expect, we want to be told things when we go to the museum, because otherwise, what's the point? But not only to be told, also to be asked. There's also the question of who has the right to tell the story, isn't there, in the museum? And how how you widen the authorship is one of the, obviously, the huge question at the moment in terms of the the the, the material from... Uh, particularly from colonial territories, acquired in colonial territories, you know, how the people from those territories or from a diaspora ought to be engaged in presenting the narrative and reviewing the narrative. And I don't know whether there's a parallel in the, in the debates of the antiquaries about who is allowed to have an opinion well, I on think the past. In, well, in, in one very big sense, yes, because... Um, the idea that when the, uh, some of the antiquaries began to write commentaries on Shakespeare, taking Shakespeare's plays, I mean, dealing with them as we take for granted now, you know, trying to explain what obscure words meant, giving historical context. And Francis Dowse, who wrote a lot of, wrote a commentary, two-volume commentary on Shakespeare, and was then absolutely slated in the Edinburgh Review, saying that the commentators were feeble folk and absolutely saying people like this have no right to approach Shakespeare. They should not speak on this subject. Which, I mean, really, you have to sort of now, I think, think, well, you fine, you could disagree. And indeed, some of Dowse's points were very kind of pedantic and footnotey, but he presents them as footnotes. I mean, he's just saying he's trying to work out the date for the first performance of The Tempest and things, things which we now think are very proper. But no, it was absolutely um, verboten by the guardians of high enlightenment culture for people like this to be even to even have an opinion, so I think we've we've come a long way from that. But um, and there was at the time um, dissent, obviously, from this. But now I think the idea, well, particularly bringing children into museums, bringing people face to face with objects that I mean, from which the objects have been deracinated. Maybe the people also feel that they have been deracinated from the point where they had something in common with this object. And um, bringing them together and allowing in that space, in that conversation, um, new associations. I mean, we began by talking about associations of objects. New associations grow as well as older ones being re-established. I mean, it is very... That's exactly, I think, what is happening at the moment in, in museums right across, right across the country. Very interesting example in Oxford... They Ashmolean put on a, a small exhibition of the objects given to it by Gertrude Bell and T. E. Lawrence uh, mo- before the First World War, when they were distinguished Arabists, young archaeologists, and collecting in what is now you know, Iraq, Syria, whatever. 
obviously the objects had been there for over 100 years. They'd been researched in the way you'd expect. Um, and a lot of them are you know, third millennium uh, objects. The project was to engage current refugees, current immigrants from that region with those objects and ask them how they responded to them. And no information, just respond. And the results were very extraordinary because what emerged very quickly was that a lot of the objects, you know, the little model of a wagon, certain kinds of cups, were exactly the objects that these people remembered from their childhood or from the house they'd left 20 years ago. And the historic dimension was of very little significance to them. What it did mean was that their home was here. And the role of the object in the museum to play that kind of affective part in the integration of an immigrant <laughs> um, that allows them to keep what defines them as they integrate is something that's now being very clearly articulated and I think is exactly the kind of response that an antiquary would have understood Absolutely. and welcomed. And it brings us back to that sense of the connection between place and time, because even people who are not displaced in space, all of us are constantly displaced in time because we constantly move through it. And there is always that moment in, I remember in um, one of the East End Childhood Museums, a, an exhibition about the 1970s, and as I was going around, I heard a woman say, I had a pair of shoes like that. <laughs> and that moment when you see yourself, as it were, in the rear view mirror, exactly. this figure who is actually now also part of history. So I think seeing one's own history um, gives everyone, even if you have not been displaced um, geographically, the museum is a way of understanding yourself in time as well as space. And perhaps something even one beyond that of... The museum is a place where you can be reminded or demonstrate that you are actually making history. Yes. That it is we, not only we tell it and present it all together now in this model, but we are the makers of it. Um, again, it's one of the, in Brighton, very striking uh, exhibition they did about the clothes of the gay people in Brighton. And the wedding costume of two young women uh, who had one of the first weddings, uh, uh, marriages in Brighton. And the awareness when they saw the object in a museum that they had been making history, <laughs> that this was a huge change and they were not just part of it but making it. And again, I wonder if that takes us back to Waterloo, the realisation that the people that make history... <laughs> are the ordinary people and, uh, and that, that, that it is in every sense therefore their history because they're making it. Yes, I think exactly and that, that, I mean, a lot of historical change is very, very gradual but there are moments, the institution of the legality of gay marriage is one, the Battle of Waterloo in a very different way was another <laughs> where, but, but, where, but there were moments where people at that very time sensed that this was historic and certainly there was going to be something that you could understand from the battlefield that you were not going to get from looking at the most beautiful neoclassical object. And what is that? You're not going to read about it, you're just going to be there. What, 
What's your game? How do you define what, what you get? I don't know that you can quite define it. And that's why it annoys certain people, I think. Um, you can't quite describe it. It is the sense of place. It is the intersection of the personal, private individual with the wider experience of time and space and universal humanity, which the Romantics called an epiphany. We all kind of recognise it, but it's very difficult to define. Okay, Neil, thank you so much. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Um, And thank you to all the listeners. This is the last of this series of Close Readings, Romantic History. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening. This series was inspired by Rosemary Hill's book, Time's Witness. To buy a copy from the London Review Bookshop, just go to lrb.me forward slash hill or click on the link below.